Hi, it's Ariana. Hi, it's Greg. As a listener to Climate One, we know you care about how climate disruption is affecting all of us now and into the future. I'm guessing you already do several things in the spirit of climate action. Here's another one. Giving a donation to us to continue bringing you shows about the causes and solutions to the climate crisis. You can do that at climateone.org donate. We offer all our podcasts and radio shows for free, but it takes time, effort, and resources to produce new episodes every week. When you give, you help us pay for the talented staff, equipment, and materials we need to make the show. And you'll join a group of other dedicated funders and community supporters who keep Climate One on the air. If you're inspired by the guests and conversations we curate, please consider making a gift today at climateone.org slash donate. Thank you for your support, and thanks for listening. Who's moving ahead and who's lagging behind in the clean energy race? Climate One conversations feature oil companies and environmentalists, Republicans and Democrats, the exciting and the scary aspects of the climate challenge. I'm Greg Dalton. On today's show, we revisit a pair of conversations from last year about reducing carbon pollution, from individual action to national and international policy. The Paris Agreement we all thought it was a step in the right direction. It's a step, everything's a step in the right direction. The question is, are you getting there fast enough to head off this catastrophe? Joshua Goldstein is Professor Emeritus of International Relations at American University and co-author with Stefan Quist of the recent book, A Bright Future, How Some Countries Have Solved Climate Change and the Rest Can Follow. Part of tackling climate change is the dramatic decrease in the price of clean energy technologies. We're seeing some numbers that I think are kind of nuts. Solar is 90% cheaper than it was 10 years ago. Wind is 70% cheaper. Batteries are 80% cheaper than they were. Sonia Agarwal is vice president of the consulting firm Energy Innovation. We'll hear from her along with Joshua Goldstein and Stefan Quist later in today's show. First, a discussion about where to begin when addressing the climate challenge. The one thing you have to remember about climate change is there isn't one thing <laughs> about climate change. It's a whole bunch of things. Jonathan Foley is executive director of Project Drawdown, which published a list of top solutions for climate change, impactful actions already in existence that not only reduce carbon emissions, but also improve lives, create jobs, and generate community resilience. Besides clean energy and saving the rainforest, the checklist also includes less obvious items, such as reducing food waste and women's empowerment. Almost all the people leading our sustainability work at Google are women. Kate Brandt is sustainability officer at Google. She and Jonathan Foley joined me along with Lois Quam, the U.S. CEO of Pathfinder International, an organization that champions women's education and reproductive freedom. Quam started out in the healthcare field before joining Pathfinder. But it was a life-changing visit to the Arctic that inspired her to take on the battle against climate change. I'm a Norwegian-American, and I have three sons. And I wanted to take them to meet their relatives in Norway. And a lot of my family in Norway lives in what they call the High North, the Arctic region of Norway, um, uh, in, in and around Tromso. And I took my sons for that visit. Um, and something uh, happened to me there that, that I didn't realize was going to happen. In seeing the changes, in listening to people talk about the changes there and in Spitsbergen, which is, I know, a part of Norway you and I have both been mm -hmm. to, 
Um, and the way people would say, well, you know, the ice is going away. And the ice is going away. Mm-hmm. And, and I came back from that trip, and I, I, I couldn't settle back into my life as I did before. I kind of tried to. And, and I would say that every major decision I've made since that point has been affected by that trip. It got way inside me. And what I'm doing now at Pathfinder came out of a realization that one of our most treasured human rights is also a tremendous way to combat climate change. And that human right to decide whether and when and how many and with whom we want to have a child, um, the ability to exercise that right is as Drawdown shows, uh, one of the top strategies to combat climate change because it enables women to be innovators, women to make different decisions uh, about their lives and about their families. So so like you, it was really seeing that firsthand and and I think being with my my young sons and thinking about um, the future I wanted for them and kind of like, what was I going to say to them when they were grown, if I didn't invest in this work, John Foley, you know, environmentalists, uh, the, the climate conversation is a lot about smokestacks, tailpipes, uh, chemistry and physics. Not a lot about gender issues, mm-hmm. women's reproductive. Uh, you know, top drawdown puts a couple of those are in the top ten, I think, if I get there. You know, um, so tell me about the inclusion of those and the reception to. Whoa, hey, how, you know, oftentimes there's an approach of oh, population control. Yeah, let's, can we all agree that those two words should never be uttered in the same sentence again? Um, especially by white men. Um, <laughs> so, um, you know, that, that's kind of silly. And, and Lois is the real expert here, so it's silly for me to talk about that. But we, we did a little bit of the math saying it isn't just the carbon footprint that matters. It's also the number of feet. Right. And uh, so as we think about, you know, are we going to live in a planet of eight billion, nine billion, ten? It will matter. Now, admittedly, a lot of that population growth will be in some of the poorest places of the world uh, where the carbon emissions are far less than, let's say, ours in this room, for example. Uh, But nevertheless, a billion people, more or less, is a billion people, more or less. That's huge. And so we did find that when you think about the things that are really the positive levers for change that also affect uh, reproductive trajectories in the futures, like educating girls, access to family planning, things that Lois and others have dedicated their lives to, was also intersected with climate solutions as well. In fact, when we put kind of women and girls solutions together, they became one of the most powerful things we can do. And it's not just on population, by the way. There's other things that women disproportionately have a role in smallholder farming, Mm -hmm. also in collecting fuel wood and what's cooked at home, food waste, water decisions, things like this. So especially in other, you know, and especially in the developing world. So I think there's a lot more there, but Lois and I have talked about this before. The communities that kind of think about climate change and the communities that think about kind of reproductive health and women's rights, we haven't learned to talk to each other quite yet. We need to kind of come together because we're often talking about very similar issues. And when we discover that, it's very exciting. Kate Brandt, uh, gender equity and opportunity is a big issue in tech. Uh, and I'm curious if it, at your work at Google, if the gender conversations are, are separate from the sustainability conversations, if they ever in, if they ever connect. I think for us, actually, where the issues intersect the most is 
almost all the women leading our sustain, almost all the people leading our sustainability work at Google are women. I, I have noticed this not just at Google, but um, across a lot of women, a lot of people that are leaders in this space, we're increasingly seeing women taking leadership roles. Mm -hmm. um, so I think obviously the tech and gender conversation is critical. It's not part of my remit, but I feel really proud that so many of the people that are leading this work for us and at other companies and at other organizations are women. And what are the, some of the big levers that you have at Google to, to get at greenhouse gas reductions? Because it's so big. What are some of the big levers? Yeah. So for us at Google, we you know have initially really started with our own operations. Um, so really dating back to our founding 20 years ago now, um, our founders have always deeply cared about this issue. And so it's really grown up inside of the company, inside of how we operate the business. And um, some of the big levers we have are how we use energy. So as you probably know, you know all the tools and services we use every day, YouTube and Gmail, um, are run in data centers. And data centers use a lot of energy. Energy. So from the time we started building our first data center um, over a decade ago, we've been laser focused on not only how do we build them as efficiently as possible, but also how do we ultimately move towards clean energy. So we've been carbon neutral since 2007, and we've been on a journey of procuring renewable energy. And so we're now matching 100% of our energy with renewable sources. But along the way, it's been really important to us to figure out how do we drive policy change how do we enable more clean electrons to get on grids all over the world so that we can not only meet our goal, which is to be 100% renewable, but actually to help green grids to bring down prices so that we can all more move towards a carbon-free future. The third-ranked solution on Project Drawdown's list is reduced food waste. They estimate a 50% reduction of the world's food loss and waste would cut the equivalent of 70 gigatons of carbon dioxide emissions. Reducing food waste takes on many different forms. Uh, in developing countries, food often doesn't make it to hungry people because of storage or distribution problems. In the US and other wealthy nations, we simply throw out lots of food. City Harvest rescues high quality food in New York City that was being discarded in perfect condition, provides it to hungry people. It's been operating for more than 30 years and inspired other organizations around the country. But senior organization specialist Kate McKenzie says it's only been in the last decade that their work is being recognized for its climate positive effects. Since City Harvest started rescuing food, we've prevented about 600,000 metric tons of methane from being uh, released into the air. And that's the equivalent of taking about 100,000 cars off the street for a year. Really starting in um, you know, 2010, 2011, the movement of connecting the production of food, the way food is grown, the local food movement, and doing more with less as it connects to climate change really started to take hold. I remember having been in the space for a while when it was seen as, well, there's the environmental folks, the food waste side, and then there's just the anti-hunger community. And increasingly, I would say, particularly over the last six to seven years, the two have really merged. So it's no longer a conversation of you either care about food waste or you care about food insecurity. It's a very large problem of hunger. There's a very large problem of food waste. And if we can solve both together, that's fantastic. But the two sides do need to be talking together. That was Kate McKenzie with City Harvest in New York City.
Another example of co-solving problems yeah. that aren't connected but, right. but, yeah. but can be connected. John Foley, I'd like to talk to you about uh, the obstacles to some of the, the drawdown levers and, and, and mind, the mindset. Mm -hmm. uh, Carol Dweck at Stanford has the idea of a growth mindset, fixed mindset. Mm -hmm. So, you know, because if humans were just rational and implemented all of the solutions that you identified, we'd get the job done, but that's not happening. So tell us about the mindset <laughs> obstacles. That really sucks too. I, you know, it's like, <laughs> that's been a real problem. Um, so well, what we look at is, uh, you know, it's, we can throw our arms in the air and say, well, this is the world we'd like to have, but this is the one we do have. And in Drawdown, we looked at, you know, like a hundred different solutions, but they boil down to like five big areas. Um, if you're thinking about how to solve climate change, here's where you start. Electricity is about a quarter of the problem. Food, agriculture, and forest are also a quarter of the problem, but don't get nearly as much attention. Then you've got buildings, industry, and transportation. Those are the five things we get to change, okay? So electricity, I think, is well underway because uh, it's not policy so much now, it's markets. Solar, wind, and batteries are just getting really cheap, not because we put a thumb on the scale, they're just better technologies. You know, Amory Lovins used to say, uh, you know, the Stone Age didn't end because we ran out of stones. <laughs> um, <clears throat> the Coal Age didn't end because we ran out of coal. It ended because it's bad technology. So I think electricity, I feel like we're heading in the right direction. But other sectors like uh, food, about a third to you know, half of the food grown on the planet isn't used. So that's a human, a human tragedy as well as an environmental tragedy because it means half of the food resources, land, water, energy, and materials were also wasted. So that's a good place. Diet changes are gonna be important. Uh, stopping deforestation, which Google, by the way, revolutionized the way scientists can track deforestation around the world and gave it away for free. So there are a lot of good things happening. The ones I worry about, though, are around buildings and transportation, because there's always a time lag. Today, you might see somebody buying a new Tesla, but for every new Tesla, there's five SUVs being sold today, still, right? Or I don't know what the number is, but it's more than five. Mm -hmm. And they're going to be on the road for about 20 years before they end up in a landfill, 17 years in California. That's a long time to wait to turn over the car fleet. And then you think about buildings. This is a beautiful new lead building, but for every new lead building you build, there's a thousands and thousands of buildings that are kind of old. What about them? And the deep energy retrofits they'll need, that'll take about 20 years as well. So that's kind of when I look at obstacles, I see where markets are, you know, what, you gotta think like a tech investor. You think about stage gating. Like what's the most limiting thing between today and success? Is it policy? Is it markets? Is it capital? Is it rules? Is it technology? And so on. And I think we have to knock down domino by domino by domino and very different ways. And we don't, the same tool doesn't work for everything. It isn't a hammer because these aren't all nails. Uh, electricity, it's markets and scaling and investment. And food, I think it is going to be regulatory. We're going to need rules to change food waste and diets, not just good feelings. That's starting it, but we're going to need rules. We're going to need policy change, but maybe they'll be local. I don't know. Uh, we need a lot of attention in the Amazon right now because um, Brazilian deforestation had been going down for decades, and now with a change in government, it may go back up very quickly. If I had $100 million right now, I'd hire a lot of lawyers and descend on Brazil and not leave. Uh, that would be huge. Like, save the Amazon from their own government. Uh, it would be huge, working with indigenous communities and uh, uh, environmental groups. So I think there's different tools for different problems. And so when I feel like we're getting stuck, I think we have to zoom in a little bit more and be more granular on the problem. We can't just say climate change has one solution. 
um, our, our founder was a guy named Paul Hawken, and he likes to say, the one thing you have to remember about climate change is there isn't one thing <laughs> about climate change. It's a whole bunch of things. Mm. And so let's learn, let's click down one more click and go from climate change to, oh, it's electricity. That's the tool for electricity. It's food, it's buildings, it's cars, and it's industry. We could have different tools for different kinds of problems. And when you do that, I think we, it becomes a lot clearer what's next and where we need to focus our attention. You're listening to a Climate One conversation about drawing down carbon pollution. Coming up, more about how women's empowerment and contraception are critical to taking on the climate challenge. The opportunity to exercise this right that we've had is so key that I wasn't surprised when Drawdown found that that combination of girls' education and family planning was the single highest way to get there. That's up next when Climate One continues. This is Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton, and we're talking about finding solutions to climate change with Jonathan Foley, Executive Director of Project Drawdown. Kate Brandt, Sustainability Officer at Google, and Lois Quam, U.S. CEO of Pathfinder International. Quam explains the obstacles that prevent women in some parts of the world from being part of the climate solution. Globally, 45% of all pregnancies are unintended. And uh, the best estimate says that if every woman had contraception when she wanted it, and we know hundreds of millions of women want to use contraception and don't have regular access or any access to it. That number would go from 45% unintended to 7% unintended. And the Wittgenstein Institute in Austria just did an analysis of this, and they looked at two different world uh, outcomes. One, where we invest in girls' education, where we invest in family planning, and other ways to build uh, people. And the other where we principally invest in security and defense and anti-terrorism. And they estimated that in this strategy where we're investing in people, including family planning, that about the middle of this century that population would actually go below where it is now, below seven billion. And in this strategy where the investment is in security but not in people, that population size will be about double that, around 13 billion. So it, the opportunity to exercise this right that, that, that we've, met, we've had is so key to combating climate change that I wasn't surprised when Drawdown found that that combination of girls' education and family planning was the single highest way to get there. This is about a human right, and it's a, about everybody's human right to make these kind of decisions about their life and to, and to have the tools to be able to do that. And from the very beginning, um, Pathfinder is community-based because this work is, is deeply cultural. We don't require our staff to have English. Most of the, uh, our staff have to speak the local language because their job is to work with their neighbors to create the space so that people have options in their life and can exercise their rights. John Foley, so much of the, the climate situation is, is about um, scale and transcending the individual and the systemic. Mm-hmm. And climate people talk about, we got to scale fast. Mm-hmm. And so I'd like to hear your thoughts on, you, you think about drawdown, 
individuals say, what can I do? And you were, how can an individual, but we need systems change, but, but how can an individual affect a system? So I struggle with that, that bridge between the individual and the systemic level change. Well, when you think about systems in general, there's an idea like a, called fractals. You know, there, there's patterns of organization that happen at all scales. So change doesn't happen just at the top or just at the bottom. It's often from the middle out. And so I think that's a mistake we sometimes make that, you know, yes, one individual out of seven billion just doing it all by themselves may be virtuous, but not very effective. But waiting for the UN for 30 years or Washington to just save us from ourselves that hasn't worked out too well either. And it's not going to, you know, frankly. I don't think, we've, I'm done waiting for them. Um, so let's look for other levers. And I think, you know, to really achieve drawdown, um, we looked at 100 solutions. And we actually looked also, it's not in the book, but we looked at the, what we call the level of agency. Kind of, you know, what lever gets pulled to make that happen. And sometimes it's international policy, sometimes it's national. Often it's local. Um, some of the most important people in the United States around climate change are people you've never heard of. They're the people who chair a public utilities commission. Mm -hmm. They're the head of your zoning boards. They're people who are often, even not, uh, Hal Harvey makes this point a lot too. Mm -hmm. The policy making is often rule based in local communities, states, and counties. And we don't talk about that, but that's huge. But also at the end of the day, it's gonna be behavior change by all of us is necessary. <laughs> It's going to be policy change, business operations change, and changes in capital, money. And we're going to need all of that. Otherwise, we're just fooling ourselves. Don't pick one lever. Pull them all. You know, every bloody one you can find. And also recognize where there are successes and build on them. Uh, for example, we sometimes get really depressed about this stuff, but the U.S. actually hit our peak emissions in 2007. And they've been going down since. We're 15% lower than we were in 2007. It's a little uptick last year, but I think it's temporary. This is amazing. California, we're making huge progress. Uh, we're the fifth largest economy in the world, and we've committed to carbon neutrality completely by 2045. The largest economy on Earth to do so, by the way. Uh, New York uh, State just matched us in this as well. and made it a law, not just an executive order. And if you just take California and New York together, that's a quarter of the U.S. economy, two states. That's not bad. So you know, you know, so individuals matter, local places matter, cities matter. It basically, it all matters. I know that sounds trite, but it's true. Um, but where the exciting things is where those boundaries start to cross, where individuals like you and others can inspire a bunch of other people, whether they're in business or local policymaking, or maybe all the way to Washington or the UN. We just need all of this all the time, merging and mixing together like crazy. And speaking of policy, uh, Kate Brandt, a lot of businesses are not waiting for policy. They're moving for economic and self-interested reasons. So you can, I'd like to hear you on that. And also whether you're know, operating in other countries, because the other countries have not slowed down like the U.S. U.S. has. Europe, Europe is going forward. Uh, other countries, you know, China's moving forward. So do you see leadership in other countries? Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, I, I've been incredibly heartened by the amount of action that we're seeing by businesses. You know, we recently were founders of an organization called REBA, the Renewable Energy Buyers Alliance. And this is um, about 200 companies that have come together to push for getting about 60 gigawatts of renewable energy on the grid in the U.S. by 2025, and along the way, engaging with policymakers and driving this change together. So that is a great example of where we're seeing business action that's 
really driving change. And you're absolutely right. In Europe, for example, they're much further along on climate policy, and we have the ability to do even more there to um, enter into new kinds of uh, joint agreements with many companies to get wind onto the grid. And, and nonetheless, still we're there to make our voice heard with policymakers that this is an important business priority for us, that we're seeing not only that this is good for us because it enables us to operate as a clean energy company, but also it's enabling there to be positive change and business sense. This makes sense for us from a hedging our prices. We're locking in long-term prices of clean energy. That has a very strong business case for us. So I think that's tremendously important. Also, I think there's a huge role for technology companies and other companies to enable policymakers. So some of the work that we've mm -hmm. done that I'm the most proud of is creating tools for policymakers that give them the ability to drive change in their own cities. So one great example is a tool that we launched last year called the Environmental Insights Explorer. This is for cities, not big cities, wonderful cities like San Francisco that have whole teams that can work on climate action planning, but for smaller and medium-sized cities who don't have the capacity to do a greenhouse gas inventory to set climate goals. So we're trying to create tools that are freely available to enable policymakers to drive that change. Kate Brandt, Sustainability Officer at Google. We also heard from Jonathan Foley, Executive Director of Project Drawdown, and Lois Quam, U.S. CEO of Pathfinder International. This is Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. The core of the climate challenge involves moving everyone, individuals, cities, and countries to energy sources that don't emit carbon dioxide. We need to decarbonize the world economy really quickly and at massive scale. Joshua Goldstein is Professor Emeritus of International Relations at American University. He and his co-author, energy consultant Stefan Quist, titled their most recent book, A Bright Future, How Some Countries Have Solved Climate Change and the Rest Can Follow. Goldstein and Quist are joined by Sonia Agarwal, Vice President at the consulting firm Energy Innovation, to talk about how countries can pursue zero carbon energy strategies. We begin with what states and countries are leading the transition to cleaner power. There's a lot of folks in Sacramento who kind of consider us to be a separate country in and of ourselves, right? So um, if California was a separate country, it would be uh, the fifth largest economy in the world. Mm -hmm. And so it matters a lot what's going on here. And um, here we have a suite of policies which really look at each of the different sources of greenhouse gas emissions, whether it's power plants or factories, cars, buildings, agriculture, and have uh, set targets and put together really detailed policies to move us to a, a lower carbon system overall here. There's also, of course, um, quite a few other countries that are really moving quickly. In Europe, if you look at Spain and Ireland, there's a lot of progress there. I know some of my co-panelists will also talk about some other progress in Europe, too. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, it's been pretty amazing to see how the market has taken off to really bring down the cost of clean energy and what impact that's making in a lot of different places around the world. Joshua Goldstein, let me challenge a little bit even the, the question of, uh, uh, well, the title of, of the book, which is, you know, I'm not sure any country has really solved climate change. Well, nobody solved climate change, but the reason we call the book how some countries have solved climate change and the rest can follow, we're talking about a path 
that no one country can solve climate change. It's a global problem. Mm -hmm. Talking about a path to decarbonize the world. We need to decarbonize the world economy really quickly and at massive scale. Um, and the way that some places are doing it, and I would include California in this, they're moving in the right direction, but it's not fast enough, and it's not a path that could actually realistically get to the goal by mid-century. Other countries, and we talk about Sweden quite a bit, um, Stefan's country, um, France, Ontario, South Korea, have added clean energy much faster, and we're interested in that model and how it could apply to the world as a whole. The metric that matters here is carbon going into the atmosphere. It's not what you say, it's not how many renewables you put in or how many nuclear plants you put in or how many protesters you get in the street, it's how much carbon's going up. And you don't need to take our word for it. There's a wonderful website called electricitymap.org that shows how many grams of carbon for each kilowatt hour of electricity. You know, how dirty is your electricity for the countries in the world and for the states within the United States or regions? And if you look at that, you can see who's green, color-coded green, that's very little carbon going in, and, and who's really brown, you know, a lot of carbon. California's in the middle on that. Sweden and France are really green, and they're doing it with nuclear power primarily, in Sweden's case, nuclear and renewables. Uh, there are also countries that can do it with hydroelectricity, but that's very hard to expand because uh, many countries don't have that resource. Um, so we want to turn that map green, and we have very little time to do it, and it's at a large scale. Stefan Chris, tell us the, your European favorites. So, you know, Sweden, of course, it's all easy to dismiss small northern European countries with small populations. Singapore, Nordic countries, it's like, oh, it's easy for those small, uh, more socialist countries to do things. But tell us, tell us the case for those. Uh, yeah, so when I look at a problem, like I was renovating my house, I always go to YouTube and I search, like, how do you do this? <coughs> and usually that's a good way to look at a problem. Has anyone actually managed to do what we're trying to do? And the first step of what everyone is trying to do is decarbonize the electricity grid, because that's kind of the low-hanging fruit of decarbonization. And throughout my entire lifespan, I was born in 1986, Sweden's had a completely decarbonized electricity grid. So for me, it was obvious to see what did we do? How long did it take? How much did it cost? Obviously, it's a small example, but basically France is a similar example at a much larger scale. But Sweden is kind of the size of a typical US state. And so you could make the argument that if every state did like Sweden, that would add up to United States, for instance. But France is a similar story on a much larger scale. So th there are a few examples, but obviously we have this big problem because there aren't a lot of good examples. There are only a few good examples. Uh, but what I was starting to look at in my academic research is how did Sweden do this? How did France do this? How quickly did it happen? And how much did it cost? And so those stories, I think, are stronger than energy systems modeling, which I also do, because they actually happen in real life. Of course, we talk about France. You have to talk about the recent uh, yellow vest protests, Sonia. Uh, you know, a lot of people on the right, Heritage Foundation, were very quick to point out, aha, you try to price carbon, raise gasoline taxes, there's revolutions in the street, which could send a chilling effect to some politicians thinking, oh, we don't want to have that here. But it's actually more complex. 
I totally agree. Yeah, so there's a lot of different things going on in France at the moment in terms of their overall economic policy. So one of the things, of course, is a list of carbon-oriented, climate-oriented policies. But at the same time, there's a lot of um, broader uh, immigration and economic issues that are going on as well. So. Um, Changing income taxes, a lot of things to get angry about. Exactly, exactly. So yes, the taxes are a huge issue um, overall, not just the um, taxes on fossils. So I think that without a clear plan to bring communities along and bring working people with you on the solutions, it's going to be uh, a lot harder to get there. But I don't think that it's a um, one or the other here on pricing carbon. But uh, Joshua, as a professor of international relations, it, it must sting to look at, you know, we have the Paris Climate Accord, and here we have the president of France trying to advance a climate policy, and it literally goes up in flames. What does that say to other politicians around the world about climate leadership? And it, it's got to have a chilling effect. Well, carbon pricing is, which a, a gas tax is kind of a version of, it, mm -hmm. it's hard politically. And Australia put it in, and then the government lost power, and it was taken back out. Washington State tried to pass a carbon price, and it didn't pass. Second time it failed. Second time it failed. British Columbia's done it pretty successfully, and right. Canada's trying to put it in. And then California and New England have a, a, a low, pretty low tax. But when it works, it's great. And Sweden's done it very successfully, $150 per ton. Um, which is a very high carbon tax. When a carbon price works, it works across the whole economy, and it does, it's not picking particular technologies. It works for renewables or, or nuclear power or geothermal um, on evening the price with fossil fuels. Right now, fossil fuels can dump their pollution into the atmosphere, not only for climate change uh, effects, but also uh, health effects of burning coal and so forth. That's all free. So if you can even that out then, and it works across the whole economy and it works really quickly, then that's a huge step forward. So there are efforts in the US Congress now to pass a uh, carbon pricing bill, raise the price of uh, fossil fuels and rebate to the citizenry the revenue that's raised, so it's revenue neutral. And it, it's got support from a lot of Republicans and Democrats alike, but it, it is a hard issue politically. You're listening to a conversation about how some countries are solving climate change. This is Climate One. Coming up, more about how low-carbon technologies, including nuclear power, fit into the energy market today. Solar plus storage and wind plus storage in some of the most recent auctions are coming in at costs that are below the ongoing operating costs of existing coal plants. It's a pretty amazing moment. That's up next when Climate One continues. This is Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. We're talking about the transition to carbon-free economies with Joshua Goldstein, Professor Emeritus of International Relations at American University. Stefan Quist, an energy consultant and co-author with Joshua Goldstein of the recent book, A Bright Future, How Some Countries Have Solved Climate Change. And Sonia Agarwal, Vice President at the consulting firm Energy Innovation. Sonia explains some of her research on cost curves and the economics of various energy. 
looking at cost uh, comparisons, um, I think it's been really interesting to see some of the very exciting uh, technology neutral auctions that have been happening across the United States and in other parts of the world over the last few years, especially as coal plants have started to retire. We're seeing some numbers that I think are kind of nuts, honestly, not just for solar coming in or wind coming in, which are extremely low cost and have come down, let's see, solar is 90% cheaper than it was 10 years ago, wind is 70% cheaper, batteries are 80% cheaper than they were. But that's kind of the key point to here, especially in this context of dispatchability and balancing the grid. Solar plus storage and wind plus storage in some of the most recent auctions are coming in at costs that are below the ongoing operating costs of existing coal plants. And that's just a crazy time if you think about it in a, in a system that has traditionally moved very slowly. It's a pretty amazing moment. Um, and we've, we've seen the evidence of this. Um, you know, these are just the most recent auction results, but this has been kind of an inexorable decline over the last decade, and we're seeing more and more renewable energy capacity get built um, here in the United States as a result of that. And that's really the power of economies of scale, repeating that manufacturing over and over and over again, which fossil fuels don't have that same uh, advantage because the oil well here, it runs dry. You got to do oil well somewhere else. They don't have resource extraction, doesn't have the same manufacturing economies of scale. Stefan Quist, neither does nuclear yet. No, and I, I would disagree with you a little bit on, on these numbers because uh, for in, in Sweden, for instance, half of the power comes from hydroelectric and half from nuclear. So it's kind of the ideal place in the world to try to do 100% renewables. You have hydro, which is the most, you know, you can fill out any gap in the solar and wind production very easily. But then you have, like this morning, you have no wind and the sun doesn't really rise in Sweden for a few months in the winter. <laughs> so you somewhere... The ha oh, half great. of your power yeah. system <laughs> needs power from somewhere. And if the sun isn't shining and the wind isn't blowing, if you want to build over, um, like, say, a few days or what you need to cover that with batteries, that system is far more expensive than even the most expensive nuclear that you could build. So when you say wind plus storage or solar plus storage, it's not a grid-level scale balancing storage. It's, it's not a comparative number in that sense. So I would, I would dispute uh, that. But I think we have a real-world example of two different strategies. We have one country in Europe that a decade ago said, we're going 100% renewables, we're going all in, the entire population is behind us, we have enormous funding, and we're going to do this. And we have a decade of results, and that's obviously Germany and the Energiewende, where... Basically, they have not been able to reduce their carbon emissions almost at all. This last year they did, but now they are actually trying to not make a big deal out of that because everyone knows their carbon emissions will increase in 2019 compared to 2018. They have not decarbonized. In over a decade of extremely hard, concerted effort to do the 100% renewables route, it has not succeeded. It's actually been a catastrophic failure. Uh, so we, I, I like to look at the real-world examples of wh what has worked, and I think benching one of your main players in the low-carbon system is, is never going to be a good thing. If you allow everyone to, com to contribute, that's going to be a better system, and that's what history has shown us, and that's actually what modeling shows us as well.
Sonia Agarwal, do you agree with what? Do you, do you want to reply? Um, sure, there's a lot there. Um, I would uh, say I totally agree. We shouldn't bench anyone. I think that um, in the places where markets are allowed to function in a technology neutral way, the evidence seems to show that renewables or renewables plus flexibility resources come in a little bit lower cost than nuclear. Um, that's of course gonna vary across the globe because there are certain areas where, you know, uh, solar and wind resources are less good than others. But um, I guess I would say also on the nuclear, on the uh, Germany question, again, a little bit more going on there. One of the issues of course too is that they decided to shut down their nuclear fleet at the same time as they made that pivot to renewables. And um, I would say that was not the right choice for the climate, and uh, much better would have been to get rid of the fossil units at the same time as turning toward renewables. And then there I think we, we would be <laughs> in a much better position there, too. Joshua Goldstein, I want to ask you about the Trump effect, the softening of U.S. leadership on international efforts, because there was a lot of... Um, peer pressure that went into Paris, particularly between uh, Xi Jinping and, and President Modi and President Obama, that's all different now. So how is that, uh, the international dynamics of leadership on climate different now? Well, they, they weren't so great before. And the Paris Agreement, we all thought it was a step in the right direction. It's a step, everything's a step in the right direction. The question is, you're getting there fast enough to head off this catastrophe. That's the urgent problem we're facing. And the Paris Agreement, as far as it goes, if all the countries in the world kept their commitments, which, by the way, almost none of them are, everybody's falling off their commitment, if they all did keep their commitment, all it would do is flatten out our carbon emissions at today's levels. That's not good enough. That's every day we're putting way too much carbon into the atmosphere. And what we need to be doing is rapidly decarbonizing the world economies. We need something more than the Paris Agreement. Um, I'm not going to say anything good about President Trump, but if you took him out of the picture, it wouldn't change things that much. And by contrast, China says they want to be the climate leader, but they're burning half the coal in the world. So if China wanted to really be a climate leader, they could commit to taking the coal off the grid and replacing it fast with clean nuclear power the way Sweden did, as well as building out their renewables fast, which they're doing. Um, put in the low-carbon sources as quickly as possible. Just talking about it, Paris Agreement isn't getting there fast enough, and the 100% renewables idea also can't get there fast enough, but if you bring everything to play and really come to terms with how serious the problem is, you could get there fast enough for going. There's something called the Climate Action Tracker, which ranks critically insufficient Russia, Saudi Arabia, Turkey, and the U.S., highly insufficient, Canada, Japan, South Korea, very few people are doing, you know, getting anywhere close to where, where they, they should be. Uh, Sweden is not rated on this. I don't know why, Stefan. Tell us about some of the new promising nuclear technologies. There's a company called NuScale uh, that's been interviewed here before, the chief technology officer. There's sort of this often long-seeming promise of the next time will be different. The next generation of nuclear will be different. There's small modular reactors. Um, are those for real? Yeah, new scale is very much for real. Uh, and it's, it's a very exciting story. Uh, one of the major problems, as you've seen with this giant construction projects, 
is uh, is financing to find the, the amount of money, even if you build it cheaply, to find the amount of money that's required to build one of these projects is quite hard. And if you do get long construction delays, your financing costs, just paying off your loans, becomes a really big cost driver. Now, what NewScale and other people are trying to do is build smaller individual units that are cheaper uh, in absolute terms. They might be similar in cost of delivered electricity, but just cheaper and quicker to build because they're smaller. And so you're trying to remove one of the major uh, economic risks of nuclear development doing this. And they, you know, they have a number of other advantages. Now, Nuska has been able to prove that the safety of their plant is so good that their planning zone for emergencies is basically just the boundary of the site that they are on, which opens up a whole different types of siting as well for these kind of plants. So it's very much for real. New Scale is a, is a fantastic success story so far, but of course we need to see them built and we need to see them come in at prices that are relevant for a decarbonized grid. They also don't require power to keep the reactor safe, which was a big concern after Fukushima about disruption of, of power. So if it's true, uh, but they're still uh, unresolved is, is the waste question. They still have the sort of normal waste issues right there. So Stefan Quist, um, here in this country, we have this ongoing political battle. There are uh, Yucca Mountain, there's bipartisan support for it. If you're outside of Nevada, if you're inside Nevada, there's bipartisan opposition to Yucca Mountain. Uh, the full cost of that is forecast to be $100 billion, uh, a lot of money, maybe not a lot in the grand scheme of the U.S. economy, but the waste issue is still there, and it's not getting solved. Yeah, I would caution that, I, in my personal opinion, and looking at facts, the, waste, the nuclear waste issue isn't that much of a time-pressing issue. We, we know very well how to handle waste safely, and once we've dealt with climate change, it's, it's absolutely no problem to build a repository for nuclear waste if you like to. Finland has started to build theirs. The Swedish one is approved. There are methods to do this. But the amazing thing when you talk about this is that even in a country like Finland, where they're already building their approved nuclear waste repository, people still have the knee-jerk like, response. Well, there's no way to store it. Even, even when you have an approved system that is being built, it's kind of almost built into people that it's not possible. Uh, we have a lot of dangerous wastes coming from numerous industries that we don't know how to store safely that needs to be stored forever, not just for a very long time, but forever, which we don't care enough about. But the nuclear waste issue we really do care about, so we, we have solutions for that. Now, obviously, the, the US situation is a mess, but it's not a time-critical issue. Sonia, I want to ask you, you're the optimist. Do you ever have moments of fear or doubt where you say, boy, this is scary. I don't know if we can do this at the scale. You have moments of like, maybe my friends are all alarmist and it's not as bad as they think. <laughs> um, definitely. I mean, this is a problem with quite overwhelming magnitude, especially looking at those statistics around how quickly we need to really start seeing results in bringing down greenhouse gas emissions. Um, I sort of think of it as, you know, how far we have to bring them down and how quickly we have to bring them down. That means that we need really to be working with everything that we're putting out there now has to be zero carbon. And we have to be letting all the technologies compete to get out there as quickly as possible that are zero carbon. So, yes, the magnitude is overwhelming, but I also have a lot of faith in humanity. So, Stefan Quist, you just got off a plane from Europe. What do you personally do to you know, have a low-carbon lifestyle? Well, I mean, the, the main thing I try to do is, is write 
scientific articles and books about how we could decarbonize our electricity. But I would say, in, in my own personal defense, I haven't had a car. I had a car when I was 18 for a few months, but since then I've never had a car at all. And ironically, my electricity contract is 100% renewables. It's just because there is no 100% low carbon contract for me to buy, which is what I would like to buy, but the 100% renewable one is the second best thing. So I, I, I do that, but I also do this kind of, my family did uh, the Christmas gift this year was carbon offsets. <laughs> not, not, the most, <laughs> not, not the most fun Christmas uh, <laughs> opening ceremony, but yeah. yeah the, the best stocking stuffers on those cars, yeah. Um, <laughs> Joshua Goldstein, you have an interesting story for how you were inspired by a loved one to get into this. Tell us that. Yeah, so I started uh, as an environmentalist back in the 1970s, and I started one of the first curbside recycling programs in the country. I hated nuclear power like everybody did because it was big and technological and unnatural. Um, and then I had children. And my uh, son, in particular, when he turned 10, he became a climate activist. And he started to just hammer on me. He's 25 now, so that's, that's a lot of hammering. You know, climate is the issue. This is the planet you're leaving us. This is the thing you need to work on. And I'm a global trends person, so I thought, you know, about five years ago, okay, I will work on it. Not just the feel-good things, not the ideologies, but how am I going to turn over to my children a planet that's in good shape? for them to live in. We're going to invite you to um, join us for the conversation. Welcome to Climate One. Hi, my question is about nuclear storage. I'm wondering, has anyone created modeling that would show, okay, if we were going to make all that, the entire energy grid in the world, part renewables and part uh, nuclear and part hydro, that would we really have enough space to store all of that, all, all the nuclear waste? Um, and I hear you guys on, you know, the fact that we need to focus on reducing carbon right now and then we can worry about nuclear. But I'm just I'm trying to wrap my head around the space issue. Stefan. Yeah, sure. That's an excellent question. And this is uh, it, it's it's kind of a shame that you don't have any publicly accessible uh, nuclear storage facility here in, in my home country. We, ha we don't have NIMBY, we don't have not in my backyard for this, we had in my backyard, there were eight municipalities fighting to be the location where we store our nuclear waste. And what you see when you go and visit these, the facility where this waste is stored now, for, for a country it, it's, let's say, an average US state size that got half of its electric power for the last 40 years for nuclear power, that's stored in a swimming pool. It's, it's, that's the volume of that waste. And so it's absolutely staggering how little of it there is. And so we, we, we definitely won't run out of space, but it's also an interesting question of we can't do nuclear because we need to store the waste. Because if this was a question in 1942, then that would make sense. But you already have nuclear waste, so you already need storage. It. It's, it's a done deal for the US and for most countries that use energy. You, you already need storage. The only question is, do you need a little bit more of it or not? And that's a much easier question to ask than do you need it at all? So. And you also, people don't like it moving around on trains through their neighborhood. You know, moving it is, is highly, highly political. Let's go to, yeah, Sonia. Just one thing. Um, I actually worked on uh, accident prevention at a nuclear power plant earlier in my career in Ohio where I grew up. And I'll just say, um, a lot of it in the United States, the volume is very small. And that's absolutely 
right, but it is stored on site at the nuclear facilities because of this issue that we've had with not having somewhere to put it in this country. But it is, you know, all the spent fuel rods are down there at the bottom of that swimming pool inside the plant. And then if they're not there, they're in dry casts right behind the plant. So there's definitely in places where you don't have a publicly accessible place to put the nuclear waste, there becomes some more that needs to get stored on site. So that's another consideration. We've been talking about how some countries are cutting carbon with Sonia Agarwal, Vice President at the consulting firm Energy Innovation, Joshua Goldstein, Professor Emeritus at American University, and Stefan Quist, an energy consultant and co-author with Joshua Goldstein of A Bright Future, How Some Countries Have Solved Climate Change. To hear more Climate One conversations, subscribe to our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your pods. Please help us get people talking more about climate by giving us a rating or review. Kelly Pennington directs our audience engagement. Tyler Reed is our producer. Sarah Catherine Coxon is the strategy and content manager. The audio engineers are Mark Kirshner, Arnav Gupta, and Justin Norton. Devin Strolovich edited the program. Dr. Gloria Duffy is CEO of the Commonwealth Club of California, where our program originates. I'm Greg Dalton.